Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Just before you listen to today's episode, this is a quick message to remind you that if you like what you hear, you can help support History Hack, which is run entirely by volunteers using our Patreon account. There are links on all of our episodes. Or if a subscription is not your thing, you can also now drop us a line on Kofi, which is just the equivalent of buying us a drink. So if you hear an episode, you like it and you want to chip in just once, then you can do that too. Thank you. Hello and welcome to today's History Hack. Uh, I'm excited on this one because we have not done enough on this topic. So I actually, I don't think we've done anything on this topic in almost two years of being a podcast. So Zach, it's about time. You're in charge of scheduling. I'm blaming you. That's nice. But I'm going <laughs> to just fire the blame straight back at you because you did the scheduling for the first year. No, Alina did, to be fair. Let's blame Alina. She's okay. not here. <laughs> it's fault. So in her absence, we will dump the blame on Alina's yeah, door. Yeah, yeah. She yeah, did you're... the same to us. It's fair game. <laughs> okay. Before we create like a massive rift within the, the history hack leadership. Um, yeah, we're doing the Crimean War today or an element of it. So we have my Tro with us, who's a true crime and, and crime fiction writer. He's the author of The Pocket Hercules, a biography of William Morris, who led the 17th Lancers in the very famous Charge of the Light Brigade. But today we're going to talk about something that kind of is going to sound like you've heard of it, but actually you haven't, because we're going to talk about the charge of the Heavy Brigade, Scarlet's 300 in the Crimea, which is the title of Mai's book. Mai, welcome to History Hack. Great to see you. Um, Thank you. I'm looking forward to this. Shall we, <laughs> shall we start with the real basics here? Because we've talked about already, we kind of alluded to it, the charge of the Light Brigade made famous, of course, by the Tennyson poem. It's effectively part of certainly British military folklore, um, if not just kind of military history folklore generally. But who are the heavy brigade and, and where do the two kind of slot together? Yeah, the, the British cavalry were divided into two, the, the heavies and the lights. Uh, you might think that's based on weight, but that's totally irrelevant. Um, it's a, a traditional thing dating from the late 17th century when the British army was created. Uh, and uh, what you've got are the light cavalry composed of hussars, lancers and light dragoons. They, they were supposed to be used for foraging, for scouting, for that kind of work, checking ahead of the main body of an army uh, for the presence of an enemy and so on. Uh, and the heavy brigade were supposed to do the heavy stuff. They were supposed to charge in battle 
and smash the hell out of the, uh, the, the enemy. It didn't work out like that. Both brigades actually behaved in the same way. They did the same thing. There was no distinction between them. They looked very different. The heavy brigade, about which I wrote, uh, wore um, brass helmets uh, and scarlet tunics. If you saw what is one of my favorite films of all time, Tony Richardson's The Charge of the Light Brigade, you will have seen brief glimpses of the heavy brigade wearing dark blue. Whoops, bebom, a number of gaffes that the filmmakers made. Uh, sometimes they make them on purpose. I just, I don't like red. Blue's my favourite colour, so I went with it. And the historical, <laughs> oh my God. You know, Josh Levine, my dear, dear friend, was the historical advisor on Dunkirk. Ah. He was like, you can't have a yellow nose cone on that message. Sure. Yeah. Just like, it's our time when I want it. And there's Josh getting beaten for not knowing the stuff. Absolutely. So like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that's right. And it, it is all very well for historical advisors to pontificate. But I think when you're a director and you've got a tight budget and, and a very small um space in terms of time, you've just got to get on with the story, haven't you, really? Yeah, I think that. Uh, Josh's takeaway was I learned to pick my battles mm-hmm. <laughs> I love it that's very good <laughs> I shall use that <laughs> can I ask a really nerdy question about weaponry here because I'm thinking about this with a, a Napoleonic hat on and mm. the equipment is different right for mm. back in back in inverted covers my period for sure. light cavalry and heavy cavalry i.e yeah. saber for light cavalry generally speaking is curved yep. heavy cavalry saber that they're using at that point is basically a and it, it looks a bit like an extended meat cleave if we're being really mm. It's a very brutal piece in, of in the Napoleon, Yeah, in the Napoleonic period, that's true. Uh, any any fans of Sharp out there will know that for reasons of his own, Sharp carried a heavy cavalry sword, uh, and they are vicious, horrible things. Uh, I've got a small collection of swords, and sadly, that is not one of them. But by the Crimean period, that's changed, that's gone. We have a new pattern, the 1834 so-called honeysuckle hilt, uh, which is very similar to the three-bar hilt carried by the lights. That There is a slight curve in, in the blade. They were designed to be used for thrusting with a point and also... Uh, hacking with the one side of the blade. So you'd be a bit hard put to tell which is which, really. As I was saying earlier, there is little distinction between light and heavy, certainly in terms of the weaponry that they carried. Uh, NCOs and officers carried pistols as well, often privately purchased. Um, The other ranks were issued with carbines, short uh, muskets, converted to rifles at about that time, but they didn't like them. Uh, they, they were clumsy, difficult to load, especially from the saddle with one hand while you're holding the reins. Uh, and so they tended to rely on the sword instead. In the case of lancers, of course, the lance. So is there a lot of um, kind of investment in the history then? Do you see people being quite jealous of their tradition as a member of the light cavalry and sort of members of the heavy cavalry sort of the the recipients of banter and vice versa about oh you know the the heavies you you don't want to be part of the heavies and and so on and so forth yes there was an awful lot of that you you've got to remember that uh 
the officer class are actually a pretty unimpressive bunch, to be honest. Uh, the public school boys, uh, they're very petty. They're, they're very jealous of traditions uh, and their own status. Uh, for example, when the heavy brigade charged, uh, Lord Cardigan, who commanded the light, said, those damned heavies will have the laugh on us this day. He was really annoyed that Scarlet 300 had got in there before he did. Uh, so that there was a great deal of, of the them and us going on, yes. So we are going to cut back and talk about what the hell Britain are doing in the Crimea. But while you've mentioned some uh, one of the men, let's just talk about you've got some main characters in your book, haven't you? So who are they and what have their careers and experiences been like up until this point? Well, if we look at the heavy brigade, uh, the commander was James Scarlett, who was 56 uh, when he led the charge of the heavy brigade. Now, he had never fought a battle in his life before. You have to remember, we have what's called the long peace. That's the period from 1815, Waterloo, up to 1854, when there were no major European engagements at all in which Britain was involved. We had experience in India that the number of regiments in India were very few, and many people, again, like our dear friend Lord Cardigan, despised Indian officers simply because they were experienced, and he, by comparison, was an amateur. So James Scarlett was an amateur too, uh, and yet it didn't show on the day. His behaviour and the way he led his brigade was absolutely immaculate. Under him, he had two experienced men, and that's all. Um, one was a man called Beetson, uh, who uh, was a bit of a freelance. He was on um, uh, Scarlet's staff, but he'd served in India and he'd uh, run his own irregular cavalry out there. The irregulars didn't do exactly as they liked, but they certainly didn't conform to British regulations. So he was experienced. He'd, he'd fought uh, in various Indian conflicts, knew what he was doing. The other one, a much younger man in his 20s, was Alexander Elliott, who was Scarlett's ADC. Uh, his job was to carry orders, basically, for Scarlett, and he rode right behind him in the charge itself. Uh, I feel sorry for Alex Elliott because um, uh, he wore or a staff officer's cocked hat with a plume. And he said to his CEO, look, do you mind if I don't wear this? Because it's a bit of a target with this, this plume on, on my head. Uh, bearing in mind, Scarlett himself wore a, a, a brass helmet, which gave some protection. And um, Scarlett refused. So no, I'm not going to have my officers dressed scruffily. You, you will wear the cap you're supposed to wear. As a result, uh, Elliot got six wounds to the head. Uh, and he was extremely lucky to survive. Uh, one of them almost took off his nose. Uh, and of course, the, the scars stayed with him for the rest of his life. Oh, and I'm guessing Scarlett never again got a Christmas card from him. I'm guessing he didn't. Yeah. <laughs> Just top it. Welcome to the top of my shit list. <laughs> well, you say that, but to be fair to Scarlett, he was an enormously popular man. His troops loved him, unlike. Mm unlike Cardigan, whose officers despised him. Uh, so you, in, in the Light Brigade and the Heavy Brigade, you, you've got Cardigan, who is the devil incarnate, really, um, totally uh, misbehaving for most of his life, um, doing what the hell he liked, regardless of, of who opposed him. And you've got Scarlett, who, on the contrary, did his job, did it well, and was really concerned for his men. So we're we are going to get to the charges um, because they form part of the Battle of Balaclava, but we kind of need to just give people a vague sense. And I suspect that we might end up asking you back to cover 
Crimea properly <laughs> in the future. Uh, but we do need to give folks a vague sense of sort of what happens and how he gets to Balaclava. So how does Britain end up becoming involved in the Crimean War? And then in turn, how do we get to Balaclava itself? Because this has always struck me as quite a kind of messy period. And Britain and France working together in a war. This is, this is not known in the 19th century. And I do remember people telling me anecdotes of how the commanders in the British Army are getting very confused about, okay, we're going to go and attack the French. No, 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 sir. Oops. You're allies with the French. <laughs> are those true? Yes, they are. They are. Uh, yeah, we, we'd fought the French for a thousand years uh, by the 19th century. So to be on the same side as they were was quite bizarre. Lord Raglan, the commander of the British Army, was 70. Now, I'm 72, but the poor old boy was a little bit more gaga even than I am. Uh, and uh, he did occasionally confuse the two. So he would say you'd refer to the enemy uh, as the French to be reminded that they were actually the Russians this time. Uh, that said, the French and British didn't do much together to be honest, they tended to fight their own separate wars, even though they were on the same side. Um, how do we get to, to the Crimea? Well, um, the causes of the Crimean War are incredibly complicated, uh, and we don't have time to go into those, which I'm eternally grateful because they are so complicated. Uh, but from the British point of view, it was straightforward. Um, basically, we have Russia flexing its muscles. Now, I don't want to get political, but we have a tendency for that to be happening again, do we not? Uh, it's a cyclical thing in Russian history. It's nothing to do with communism or anything like that. Uh, it's to do with the fact that the Russians have an expansionist policy. They like to push their weight around. Uh, and they were doing so in the 1850s at the expense of the Turkish Empire, the sick man of Europe, which was tottering. It was decrepit. It was old. It was uh, dysfunctional. Uh, and it was weak by comparison with Russia. So Russia wants to expand to the south and uh, Turkey is in the way. Uh, and if we let that happen, if Britain allowed the Russians to kick the Turks aside, then that means the Russians will come out of the Black Sea, through the Dardanelles, into the Mediterranean. And the Mediterranean is sort of British by the 1850s. Even more, it's our way to India. Mm. And India, of course, cliche, cliche, the brightest jewel in the imperial crown. Uh, we've got to stop that from happening. There was no Suez Canal until 1869, but the quickest overland route to India was uh, across the desert to the Red Sea. If the Russians controlled Egypt and controlled the Red Sea, then we wouldn't be able to do that. So we have to stop the Russians. Now, nobody in 1854 in Britain um, considered the idea of an invasion of Russia. Napoleon had tried that in 1812 with disastrous results. Uh, of 600,000 men in the Grande Armée, only 40,000 came back. So you don't mess with Russia because Russia has two of the most brilliant generals in the world, January and February, and you can't mess with the weather. Uh, so at least the British government in the 1850s recognized that. And so the idea is, quote, to give the Russian bear a bloody nose. In other words, you just want to annoy the Russians and make the point that we're not allowing them to trample all over Turkey. 
So why not knock out the naval base at Sebastopol in the Crimea? Because that will give the bear the bloody nose. Um, and that's what we did. We sent the fleet um, with French support and, of course, the Turks as well. Uh, and we landed in the Crimea. We got to Balaclava, which was the uh, nearest harbour to Sebastopol itself. Notice, by the way, I'm giving it the correct Ukrainian pronunciation there. Now, I would have said Sebastopol, but uh, it's now Sebastopol because I've been there. Uh, yeah. and, I um, think the trick is with Russian pronunciation, if you're English, is always put the emphasis on the syllable that feels uncomfortable. And yeah, exactly so. Oh, so no, it exactly sounds right. like a piss take, but that is exactly how you do yeah. it. No, you're, you're spot on. Spot on. Yeah, that's <laughs> So um, the uh, the Allied troops landed in the Crimea. They fought a battle at the Alma River on the 20th of September, which was a largely an inf infantry slog. The heavy brigade hadn't even got to the Crimea by that time. Um, and then they did the flank march. They, they marched south, uh, skirting um, Sebastopol, and got to Balaclava, which became their base for the rest of the war. Uh, and so that is where the action took place. So Balaclava has three main phases to it, as I understand. And when we get to your heavy brigade charge, that's the middle. Yeah. So what happens in the early part of the battle? In the early part of the battle, there were a series of forts called redoubts. There were six of them that were built uh, on hills called the Causeway Heights, um, overlooking uh, Sebastopol. Uh, and um, these were manned by Turks. Uh, sorry, that's my doorbell going. I do apologise. I love it. It's That's so, do you know what? It's so on point for the topic yeah. as well. I'm not educated. Heavy brigade, I bring I my own horses. <laughs> when I'm mentally thinking, I know this guy lives on the Isle of Wight a lot of the time. Oh, no so, problem. you know, I'm not aware of uh, a huge, like, Cavalry brigade being oh. just positioned yeah, just, out there. Just, History just hack first. Interrupt don't, don't tell. Don't tell the RSPCA about the horse in 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 my lounge here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Where was I? Uh, yeah. out there. Um, what was I talking? You about? say that just whilst you're gathering yourself. Um, yeah. I I live uh, in a, a dodgy part of Bournemouth, and um, we have the new forest on our doorstep. And on oh, one sure. occasion, um, we were hearing uh, a lot of horse whining. And uh, we just assumed that, you know, it was a, um, a kid had got a new toy and was, you know, prancing around being my little pony or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Until my mum looked out the window and then just went to me, Zach, <laughs> a neighbour's got a horse in their garden. <laughs> and I went, what? <laughs> she said, no, seriously, come and look. And I oh. kid you not, it was one of these new forest ponies that we reckon one of the, not God. our direct neighbour, yeah, but yeah, yeah, somebody sure. further down the road. <laughs> Just decided was they were going to abduct and try and yeah. sell on. It was the most bizarre thing I've ever seen in my entire life. Uh, <laughs> oh, okay. Hey, anywho, back, back to Balaclava. Yeah, on the 25th of October, uh, 1854, the Russians attacked those forts. They'd be built by the uh, Royal Engineers, manned by the Turks. The first fort held out for about an hour. In the meantime, Lord Raglan, the British commander-in-chief, orders his infantry to go and stop that attack. 
Uh, unfortunately, the infantry were very, very slow, very sluggish that morning. They were quite a way away, um, something like three or four miles. Uh, and um, therefore, the, the nearest unit that could have stopped the Russian advance uh, were just two regiments, the 42nd and 93rd Highlanders, led by Colin Campbell. Uh, and they were the ones who, who stopped that initial Russian advance. One of the many people watching uh, that stage of the battle, the, the first phase, was William Howard Russell of the Times. He was the first ever war correspondent, uh, and he described the action as the thin red streak because there were a tiny red line against this mass of gray-coated Russian cavalry. Now, over time, the thin red streak morphed into the thin red line, which, of course, became synonymous with British heroism from, from then on, really. And the 93rd and the 42nd held off the Russians. I must just tell you an amusing little story about that. Um, the Turks ran away. The Turks were not impressive in, in this phase of the war at all. Uh, and rather than face those Russians, they left the Highlanders to it and they ran. And they ran past uh, the Highlanders' camp, where the wives of the regiment, of course, were watching anxiously. Uh, and one of them was so incensed by the Turks running away that she grabbed hold of one of them by the scruff of his neck and effectively beat him up. Uh, for deserting her husband. He was horrified uh, and kept apologizing in, in his broken English, but she wasn't having any of that. And, and she belted him until he fell over co covered in blood. And I thought, that's just great. You know, yeah, I love this her. is womankind doing Do we know bit. who she was? Yeah, I'm sorry, I can't remember her name. Oh, she no, that's all. Like, she, well, she survived. She survived well, the war, but, as uh, did her husband. Brilliant. And she, she became a, a national heroine, of course, when she went back to Scotland. She was fated and, and applauded. And quite right, too, I think. Good stuff. Okay. <laughs> so that, that was the first phase of the battle over. But, of course, the, the Russians were still carting away the guns from the forts. Now, Duke of Wellington... Uh, had never lost a gun in his entire career. And Lord Raglan, the commander-in-chief, had been Wellington's secretary back at Waterloo. So he was very close to the great man. Uh, and the thought of losing a, a gun appalled him. So at all costs, those guns must be rescued. Those forts must be saved. Uh, and the nearest unit to do that was Scarlet's Heavy Brigade. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. So the heavy brigade go in. You've just talked about the aims here. You know, recover those 
recover that artillery at all costs. How successful are they? How complicated an operation is that? You know, what, what are we talking about in terms of quality on the Russian side? And with the best will in the world, you can, you know, chase off the Russians trying to drag off those guns. But, you know, these horses are not equipped for draft work. They're not, you know, you can't just hitch the gun to a horse and, and carry it back to the redoubt. So how does that all play out? Well, the heavy brigade didn't get anywhere near those redoubts because there was a massive body of cavalry between them. Uh, they were a, a composite uh, lot of hussars and Cossacks. Now, the Cossacks, the Russian light cavalry, uh, became legendary later. Uh, they were already legendary, but they adopted a, a, a political stance, really, because they were used as policemen by various czars to keep the people in their place. Now, the Cossacks were universally detested. Uh, in fact, they had saved Russia in earlier centuries from Polish attacks and God knows what and they they were freelance horsemen they came from the steppes they were brilliant riders but they were not well equipped they were not well trained they they fought very much in an undisciplined haphazard way the russian hussars regular cavalry were much more um on a par with what they were facing. So Scarlett's first problem is to get through them before he can even reach the forts. The quality of the Russian fighting man was not great. Uh, as a military historian, I've, I'm afraid I've always thought this. I, the, the same thing applies to both world wars in, in my book. Um, they were certainly slaughtered in their thousands. In World War II, Stalin sends them in irregardless. He doesn't care about numbers of casualties, but as fighting men, they're not marvelous. One man who was with the Russian army in the Crimea was Tolstoy, the uh, later great writer. And he lamented the fact, having spoken to British prisoners during the war, he said, why, why is it that the British are so proud of their heritage? They're proud of themselves. They're proud of their army. They're proud of what they do. And our men aren't. Our men are pathetic. Well, his men were serfs. Until 1861, there was there was legal slavery in Russia, uh, and therefore most of the ordinary soldiers were literally slaves. Um, they had no status whatsoever. Their pay was abysmal. Their weapons were incredibly average, but they did outnumber Scarlet's men three to one. Uh, and that was Scarlett's problem. He charged, first of all, uh, uh, on his own volition. He got no orders from above at all um, with just two units. The, these were his 300. Uh, they were the second and um, sixth dra dragoons, the Scots Greys and the Inniskillings. And if you look at most of the art from the charge, the Scots Greys are always shown because they're so colourful. Uh, they were the only units to wear tall bearskin uh, headgear as opposed to the brass helmets. And of course, they all rode grey horses. So they must have been an incredibly striking appearance as they charged. Very rapidly, the other units of the heavy brigade, that's the 4th um, and 5th Dragoon Guards uh, and the rest of the 6th, uh, dragoons and the first Royal Dragoons joined in. So eventually the heavy brigade is made up of the best part of a thousand men and they're all charging uphill, which cavalry are not really supposed to do, uh, against this mass of Russian men. Um, to begin with, they had to stumble over the tent ropes of the light brigade because that's where it all happened. So you, ha you have at least one man, um, a guy called Neville, 
uh, an officer in the 4th Dragoon Guards who fell off his horse because the animal tripped on these tent ropes and down he went. He was killed, unfortunately, later in the charge. So it, it was a difficult piece of ground. Um, what did it achieve? terrified the Russians. They couldn't believe that this small unit was actually hitting them and going right through them. The people who watched from the hills saw this happen and thought, well, that's it. Um, they're all going to die. Um, Scarlet will never be seen again. He's lost in, in this mass of grey coats. And suddenly he's out the other side with his men behind him. It was an incredible success. See, it's interesting you mentioned about how the Scots Greys are always picked up, and I'm apologies to the listeners for the the Waterloo anecdote here, but there's a it's it perhaps ties into their pedigree, doesn't it? Because when you think about the charge of the Union and Heavy Cavalry Brigades at Waterloo, yep. what do we think of? We think of that beautiful painting by Lady Butler, Scotland Forever, <laughs> That's charge right. of the Scots Greys again. Yeah. Um, so perhaps it's because of that, and sort of trying to sort of tell a tale of regimental history as well um yeah sure sure i i, I think since you mentioned that um the uh charge uh, at waterloo was probably not delivered at the full gallop uh, as we always no, believe yeah. lady butler's painting shows full gallop the waterloo yeah. films show full gallop uh, but in fact in the early stages the highlanders the infantry were hanging onto the stirrup leathers of the men actually being carried along between the horsemen. Uh, I've never seen stuntmen daring to do that, but but it did happen. And it could only have happened if the horses were moving relatively slowly. And there's also a point about muddy ground as well, but you know, let's uh, let's not go into uh, no, the whole no, thing no, about absolutely, Waterloo. Absolutely. Um, yeah, this is this is interesting. So they they basically charge on through. Is that a case of momentum? Are they not seen coming? Or is this a case of, look, these guys are just better trained? In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. They're better equipped. They have a better kind of internal discipline and morale. And so it's that that ends up becoming the force multiplier in this circumstance. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It, it is that that training. Um, they they drilled and drilled and drilled on the parade ground for every eventuality. What they didn't do uh, was to do proper, what we'd now call war games. Uh, very few regiments before the Crimea actually met together in a brigade formation uh, to, to, to carry out the realistic uh, examples of warfare by using hedges and ditches and that kind of thing. It was all parade ground stuff, but it worked. Uh, the men were, were drilled to the extent that they knew exactly what to do and when to do it. Uh, and the, the stories of heroism are just extraordinary, of, of guys helping each other out in, in, in the most bizarre circumstances. And, and, and with any military action, there's an element of luck. Uh, and I think luck was definitely with Scarlet that day. I'm just struck by what you say about the lack of wargaming as well, because it reminds me of, and apologies, listeners, another Napoleonic thing, but I'm curious about the continuity here. So there is this charge that Wellington makes about how the cavalry have got into this head, this habit of charging at everything. And that's part of the reason why um, uh, you see this at Salamanca, 
particularly um, when the British cavalry charge in and they overextend themselves. It obviously very famously happens at Waterloo, where the same thing happens and the British cavalry ends up being cut off by French dragoons and lancers. You talked earlier about how Scarlet didn't have orders. Is this part of that same kind of tradition that the cavalry see and they do, and there's just this kind of tendency for impetuousness that during the Napoleonic era ends in absolute disaster, but by fortuitous circumstances for the British doesn't end up in the same thing here. But then, you know, important code to this, we're going to talk about the charge of the light brigade where, you know, very different set of circumstances. Is this a continuity of that trend? Would you say? Yeah, it, it is very much. And, and you, you can see it first of all, way back in the English civil war with Prince Rupert and his cavaliers. Uh, you charge at anything. That's what you do. You charge uh, at full pelt, health or leather at the gallop and you smash the enemy off yeah. the field. So there's very little thought involved, uh, very little maneuver. You simply go in there. Um, in the 18th century, one of the best commanders was Frederick of Prussia, Frederick the Great. Uh, and one of his standing orders was uh, an officer um, awaiting an attack shall be court-martialed. In other words, you don't stand to see what's going to happen. You make it happen. You are, are, are the, the, the mover and shaker. Get in there. Do it. Um, now, remember, Scarlett had no experience of this. He'd never done it before. But that must have been instilled in him, probably as a child. This is how you behave. This is what you do. You go for it. And devil take the hindmost, basically. I have to ask, why do you think this has been forgotten? Is it the impact of Tennyson wittering on? We know I'm not a poetry fan. Um, or is there more to it? The Tennyson poem is incredibly important. There was a time in schools, and I, I know that time is long gone, when kids would, would learn this, that they would recite it. You know, half a league, half a league, half a league onward, all in the valley of death rode the 600. It, it's gutsy stuff. And he wrote that in December 1854. The dispatches, the information from the Crimea, didn't get through until November, uh, published in the, in the Times, Russell's paper. Uh, and so impressed was he by what uh, had happened uh, that um, Tennyson went into print. So that, that poem actually does um, carry a great deal of significance. Can I just quote, though, from George Orwell, which is a kind of bizarre step. Uh, in 1940, Orwell said, the most stirring battle poem in English is about a brigade of cavalry which charged in the wrong direction. <laughs> i.e. the light brigade and that's the thing about the british we love disasters we love shock and horror we love the most depressing stories imaginable again i don't want to get political but can i mention a little thing called covid dying of and dying with you know all the stats that have come out from various government departments um we, we've seen this lockdown oh my god no we're all going to die this is something that is part of human psyche uh, and it's true of battles as well if you have a battle that is a success or part of a battle that is a success at balaclava you had two successes um Campbell's Highlanders and Scarlet's Heavy Brigade. They worked very well. They were very efficient. They stopped the Russian advance. But that's not what we remember. We remember the cock-up that followed the Light Brigade. And I, I think it really is part of human nature. I mean, you see that. I know Alex doesn't like the poetry, but this is one of those. And I'm often with the boss, actually, on that poetry isn't really my thing. Sorry, listeners. But... <laughs> 
I do make an exception for a few and Charge of the Light Brigade is one of them. And it, it does, as you say, kind of tap into that incompetence thing that one of the most quoted bits, um, there's not to make reply, there's not to reason why, there's but to do and die. And die, absolutely. Yep. To the Valley yep. of Death Road, the 600. And it's, yeah. it's that, look, somebody's made an absolute howler, sure. but let's remember the sacrifice of those people who yes. went in and did what they were told. Sure. And didn't sure. question it and just trusted other people to have made the right call and, and suffered because of it. Mm. Um, now, Tennyson did write a, a poem, The Charge of the Heavy Brigade, but he wrote it in 1882, by which time the day had gone and there'd been other celebrated um, successes and failures of the British Army between those times. And the poem really isn't as good. It, it has the same kind of rhythm, but not quite. And it just, just didn't catch the public imagination. So going back to Balaclava, how does it all end? Dismally, really. Um, th those guns are still being carried away from the forts. Nothing has changed. Um, Scarlet's men have dispersed the cavalry, but he hasn't got to the guns. Uh, the infantry still haven't arrived. Uh, and so um, Lord Lucan, who commanded the, 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 the cavalry, received an order from Lord Raglan. Now, this is one of those great contentious orders of all time. The message, which I've, I've read, is, is very short. It talks about preventing the enemy from taking away the guns. It talks about French cavalry on your left. In other words, they're there to support you. Um, get on with it, basically. The message was written in pencil. Um, we've got it in the National Army Museum, and it was carried by an officer called Lewis Nolan, the staff officer, who was a very outspoken critic of the high command. He was an author. He'd written two books on cavalry by this time. Uh, he was said to have a very short temper. He was half Italian, half Irish, which was a pretty volatile combination. Uh, he'd already um, given Lord Lucan the title Lord Lucon because he just looked and did nothing. But Nolan was only a captain. He, he had no authority, no power at all. He rode down this steep slope, which, by the way, is not as steep as it has appeared in various films. I've, I've been there. I've stood where Raglan stood and I've seen the route that Nolan took. It's tricky riding, but he was an excellent horseman, could have done it easily. So he rides down. He takes this message to Lucan. Lucan pouts the message to Cardigan, his brother-in-law, who, by the way, he detested. The two men barely spoke to each other uh, for most of the war. But on that day, that they were cordial. Um, and Cardigan points out from his view, lower down, of course, the Raglans grew up on the heights, uh, that there is a, a valley, which is a cul-de-sac. Uh, you've got Russian cannon at the end of it, Russian cannon to each side, Russian cavalry behind those cannon. And he points out that this would be a suicide mission. And Lucan says, yeah, I know that, but unfortunately, uh, it's Raglan's order. The commander in chief has said, so we've got to do it. And so off they go. So the five regiments of the Light Brigade move forward um, to the bugle uh, sound. What happened in the heavy brigade was that probably the charge wasn't sounded. It happened so quickly. But this is more measured. This is more straightly. They move forward at a walk, um, rising to a march, rising to a trot, with the bugle sounding for each one with cardigan at their head. The man is 56. He's suffering from asthma and God knows what. But hey, this is his first battle as well, like um, Scarlet. And he wants to make sure it's a good one. Um, Nolan was riding with them. He asked permission of his friend, William Morris, commanding the 17th Lancers, uh, to ride with the brigade. Morris said yes. Uh, and Nolan suddenly realized that they're going the wrong way. 
they're charging straight down the North Valley instead of veering to the side where the guns and the forts are. Somebody has misunderstood the direction. Whose fault was it? Well, I have to say the system is at fault because you weren't allowed to query commands. But the real culprit, I suppose, has to be Nolan. Because when he gave the message to Lucan, Lucan had said, what guns? And Nolan flung his arm behind him without looking what he was pointing at and said, there, my lord, there is your enemy. There are your guns. And of course, he was pointing down the wrong valley. Lucan took him literally, sent the light brigade to their destruction. And we don't know how many men rode the charge. My personal view is that it's 678. Uh, and of those, um, something like 250 were killed, um, same kind of number were wounded, and they lost almost all their horses. In fact, only two horses survived intact at the end of the charge of the Light Brigade without a scratch at all, which is incredible luck. That's insanity. Um, what are the long-term impacts of the battle for the campaign? Because the ground gets lost, retaken the next day by the Sardinians and the French, doesn't it? Yep, that, this is right. Uh, the, the, the Sardinians, Piedmontese, were our allies too, although they had a very small outfit there. But they did recapture the ground, um, so the guns were eventually retaken, but not immediately. Um in the long term, I think the British cavalry frightened the Russians. They, they weren't going to tangle with them again, and they didn't. There were no other clashes between um, the British cavalry and the enemy at all for the rest of the war. Uh, the only remaining pitched battle was Inkerman, which uh, again was an infantry fight in November. Um, but in terms of, of the war, nothing was achieved at all by the cavalry action. Even the heroism of, of Campbell's men and Scarlett's men, um, because uh, these things ground down. Uh, the winter was, was terrible. Um, everybody suffered. Um, men died of frostbite and exposure. Um, they had a, a, a cyclone in November where tents and huts were blown away. Horses were blown away. Imagine a horse flying through the air. What a terrifying sight that must have been. Um, and until the spring, when a railway was built and reinforcements were sent and um, dear old Mary Seacole built a hotel and Florence Nightingale came out to Scutari, nothing really improved. The British army is in an absolutely dreadful state. In terms of the very long term, disaster, failure. Okay, Sebastopol was blown up. It was destroyed as a naval base. But guess what? By 1871, it is fully built and functioning again. And again, there is a Russian fleet coming out of the Black Sea, down the Dardanelles, threatening the uh, eastern Mediterranean. And I think the survivors of all the cavalry units and all the others would have said, well, what was that all about? What, what did men die for? Because ultimately, as I have to say with a lot of wars, it achieved nothing. I mean, you talk about cavalry survivors. Were there many left? I mean, we talk about Charge of the Light Brigade. They are, as you say, charging straight into the face of all of that Russian artillery. Two horses get out unscathed. Um, okay, sure, the Heavy Brigade have a much more successful story. But, you know, these are two... You've got two brigades. One of them has a, a perhaps a, a more typical experience of combat. The other gets ripped apart. So when you say there's not much more in terms of, well, there isn't any more in terms of cavalry engagement, is that partly because 
there's a need to conserve what you've got and you need that kind of lingering threat as opposed to just destroying what remains of that that wing of your force. Yes, uh, Lord Raglan had always said that we must keep our cavalry in a bandbox because he had so few of them. Uh, and that mentality can continue. Don't risk the cavalry um, because we don't have enough of them. When reinforcements arrived, largely from India, the 10th Hussars turned up the 12th Lancers. Um, that makes something of a difference. But you have to remember that Sevastopol is essentially a siege. Um, you wouldn't expect to find many cavalry actions involved in that, but it's all about artillery, it's support from the Navy as well, who are, again, often forgotten in terms of the Crimea. They were doing their bit from the sea. Um, and uh, the, the whole thing was ended when um, diplomacy kicked in uh, and uh, peace was agreed, uh, and the Russians, in fact, blew up the base themselves. Uh, it, it wasn't the British who destroyed it, it was the Russians before they pulled out. What happens to the survivors of the heavy brigade? What are some of their stories beyond Balaclava? The officers, um, a lot of them, uh, if they stayed in the army at all, you realise that uh, officers of the infantry and cavalry bought their commission. It was their private property. So they were able to sell it at a profit if they could, in which case they would go back to civilian life. Those who stayed on were by and large promoted. Um, some of them became um, majors or lieutenant colonels. Uh, a couple of them reached the rank of general. Um, and uh, they, they were celebrated heroes, as uh, as you would expect. Um, those who left went back to their country estates. Um, most of them were public school boys, a couple of them university men, although there weren't very many of those. Um, Sandhurst, although it existed by 1854, was uh, regarded as being a little bit too common, really, for most of these gentlemen, so they didn't bother to be properly trained. Um, it was all very amateur by modern standards. Uh, the other ranks were very different. Um, the ordinary soldiers, some of them stayed on, and again, they'd be promoted, they'd become sergeants or, or sergeant majors or whatever. Uh, one or two of them were promoted to the officer class, but such men were never popular. They felt awkward being among the officers. They, they couldn't afford the lifestyle, the cost of uniforms, the cost of mess bills was horrendously high, and they were fish out of water, really. And of course, their old mates in the ranks couldn't regard them as friends anymore either because of the, the rigid disciplinary system within the army. Flogging wasn't abolished in the army until 1871. So it was a pretty harsh regime. For those who left the army, um, a lot of them went into, as you might expect, areas of life where they still wore uniforms and still took and gave orders. So they joined the police, they joined the prison service, they joined fire brigades um, and uh, made their living uh, as best they could. Some of them became quite celebrated. They gave talks on their reminiscences. A couple of them wrote books. A man named Franks in the 5th Dragoon Guards who ended up as a regimental sergeant major, he wrote an account which still survives. I used it in one of my sources. Um, but a lot of them, of course, became desperately poor. They ended their days in the workhouse. They had to sell their medals uh, in order to survive uh, and were very quickly forgotten um, in the majority of instances. It's a sad end to such an interesting tale. My thank you for, for coming on and sharing this with us. It's been kind of entertaining and, and poignant and sad in, in equal measure. The charge of the heavy brigade Scarlet's 300 in the Crimea is out now. I've had the privilege of reading it. Great read. 
Um, folks, you can pick it up in the History Hack bookstore. Don't go to Amazon for it, partly because uh. Jeff Bezos. <laughs> Jeff Bezos will skim most of the profit, and my won't see anything. And if you go to the History Hack History Hack bookstore, you not only support my, you also support us in producing this show. So you've got and independent booksellers. So you know, lots of people benefit. So please do go and buy the book, but buy it through the History Hack bookstore. Links in the description. And my, we're going to have you back at some point to talk about the insanity of the Crimean War more generally. This has been great fun. Thank you. Thank you, Zach. Thank you, Alex. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them, and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support, and here's to your next great book. 